while you are seeking me, I will be found. God isn't hiding. We hide from Him. He doesn't hide from us. Matthew chapter 25. The closing portion of what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus had disclosed to the apostles while they are in the temple, surrounded the in the packed temple in preparation, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover is about to come, the worshipers have come from all, of, not only the Roman world, but even to the east of the Roman world. They've come from the Mes uh, Tigris Euphrates Valley. They've been coming and the temple is packed, and Jesus' disciples are so excited. They're in one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple there in Jerusalem, and it has been in a process of being improved and improved and improved over years and years and years. A program started by Herod the Great decades before, and it won't even be completed until 60 A.D. It's 33 A.D., and... Great improvements have already happening, but it's an ongoing project, and Jesus' disciples are so excited, and they are pointing out to Jesus, look at all the carvings in the stones, look at all, and he says, essentially, my paraphrase, don't get too excited, boys, it's all going to be knocked down, there won't be one stone left on another. These are Jewish patriots. These are Jewish patriots. If there is ever a point of united Jewish pride, it is the temple in Jerusalem. They can point to it amongst all the ethnic groups and nations in the world. They can point to this and say, hey, which of you has a temple for your pagan gods that even begins to match? And I would dare say there probably aren't any. Yes, there are wonderful pagan temples, but not like, as I said, this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world already. And Jesus says there will not be one stone left on another. They will all be cast down. And, can, and you can imagine the shock. Not only that, but they're in the temple surrounded by people who are there to worship God who aren't Jesus' followers. And suddenly... <coughs> they might overhear Jesus saying this. There could be a riot. And so, everybody goes quiet. They go out to, Jer to the Mount of Olives, outside the gate, outside the walls, and they ask the question, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? We know you're Messiah. We know you're the anointed son of David. We know you're the one who's going to be taking the throne. When will these things be? What will be the sign of the, your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answers their Jewish patriot questions. They're asking these questions as Israelis who are steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. And they know what the Hebrew Scriptures says. The Hebrew Scriptures say, 
so much about that kingdom that is to come. But what more insights can you give us? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he takes them through material that they are familiar with. And he puts it in its proper order and even cites the, the book of Daniel, the Antichrist, the beast is coming. And he is going to there will be the abomination of desolation. That's all from the da prophet Daniel. And when you see the abomination of desolation take place, flee Jerusalem. Because then the wheels are really going to fall off. And that's halfway through the seven-year seven tribulation. Flee Jerusalem. When we know from the book of Revelation that the Jews will flee Jerusalem, they will go to the east and they will find a place of divine refuge and provision where they will be protected and provided for by God supernaturally for three and a half years. And then when I come, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he says, do not... If somebody says, you, oh, Messiah's over here, Messiah's over there, don't listen to them. Because when I come, you won't have to go anywhere to see me. Just plant your feet where they are and look up because I will open the heavens and I will come out and you will see me. Every eye will see me. You won't have to change location. Every eye will see me. And when he makes, has made that statement, he has answered their questions. And then, and this is all review, I understand that, then he gives them information they haven't asked for. Because they're going to be stepping into a role they don't understand anything about yet. They ask their questions as Jewish patriots, He's answered their questions, but now he gives them information about a role they're stepping into. They're going to become the foundation stones of a new spiritual building, and we touched on Ephesians 2 and 3 previously, called the church. Ephesians 2 and 3, God is creating a new body, a new institution, a new spiritual building. And the foundation stones are not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but the apostles and New Testament prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and that building will become a habitation of God. And that building in Ephesians 3, Paul calls the church. And this was a secret. This was a mystery. It's nowhere to be found in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was a secret that God had. Why? Because he's going to shelve rebellious Israel. He's going to put it, rebellious Israel temporarily on the shelf as that body through which he is presenting himself to the world is going to create a new body called the church through which he will do that work and that's a temporary body that's us and what will be the outcome for us and he, Jesus goes right on, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the day of the days of the coming of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Well, that does not describe the seven years before the second coming when he rips open the heavens and comes out. It's anything but life as usual. But he says, 
It will be life as usual, life as usual, life as usual, life as usual, life as usual. And then two men will be working in the field. One will be taken and another left. Two women grinding grain at the mill. One will be taken and another left. And you need to be watchful because I'm going to come as a thief would come. A thief doesn't send you a postcard ahead of time telling you when his, he's going to be arrived. Burglars don't do that. I'm going to come unexpectedly, but you need to be prepared for me. You need to be watchful because I'm coming as a thief and don't fall asleep. And that is the ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come and their job was to be announcing the bridegroom when he comes and they're all supposed to be awake and observing for when the bridegroom comes. And instead, they all fall asleep. But there was also a distinction among those ten. Five, they all had lamps. And it's at midnight. It's in the middle of the night. They all had lamps, but not all of them had olive oil, lamp oil for their lamps. Only five of them did. And so when they heard the shouts of the coming of the bridegroom, they awaken, they stand up, and five that do not have olive oil, that don't have the oil for their lamps, ask for oil from those who do, and it's too late. No, you need to go to the marketplace, which is closed, this is the middle of the night, <laughs> and get your own oil. It's too late. And those, though those five with the oil had slept, which they weren't supposed to, they were welcomed in to the wedding. The others were not. When they came back later and sought entrance, it was too late. And Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, says, talking to the Thessalonian church, he says, we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So be watchful, because he's coming as a thief. And don't fall asleep. But whether you are awake or asleep, we will be taken. I mean, it's in the same order right out of the Olivet Discourse. And he's reminding, he's, he's reminding the Thessalonians of what he's already told them. And that's where we have come. We've come to, and then we have the parable of the, uh, yes, sir. Yes, yes. That is authentic. Yes, the oil uh, oil is all is an emblem for the Holy Spirit, and whenever you see it used, the the oil used in an emblematic way in an account like this, it's always representative in reference to the Holy Spirit. And yes, you look at their church today. What do we have? We have people claiming to be part of the church that have no evidence. They've got all. They've got their lamps. They are the same, they look the same, but they don't have the ultimate thing that they need to have to be welcomed into the wedding feast. They don't have, they're not authentically born again, born of the Spirit. And in John chapter 3, where Jesus talks about being born from above, he says you must be born of the water or the wind, that is the Holy Spirit. Water, wind, fire, and oil are all used as emblematic of the Holy Spirit.
yes, it's very, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, what we see there in that, in the, except we, I hope we have a few people that are awake. <laughs> so, but yes. And then we had, last week, we looked at the parable of the, the, the man who goes on a far journey and he gives five talents to one servant, two talents to another servant, one talent to another servant. He comes back from his journey and the man with the five talents is able to present to him ten because those five he had worked and produced and so the five talents had been turned into ten talents. And the man who had the two talents, that had become four. And, got, and in both cases, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Which I will dare say, as Jesus said those words in the hearing of his apostles, they're going, wow, that's not something typically servants hear. Servants do a servant's work, they get a servant's reward. He's giving them much more than a servant's reward. He's making them Lord of things. I will make you ruler over many. You've been faithful in a little, I'll make you ruler over much. You've been faithful in a little, I'll make you ruler over much. Then, he, then the man who had the one talent comes to him and says, I know you're a hard man. And he, he lies to his master about the character of his master. We know this because of the way the master treated the other two servants. Lord, I knew, this is uh, 25, 24. Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I know you're really a thief. And I was afraid and went and healed your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Now, I think our, our first response to this is, how could a servant, this man is a slave. How could a slave be that offensive to his master? How could he say that? What does the human race say about the Creator God? It's far worse is far worse. And do they know they're doing it? Yes, they do. Romans chapter 1. The human race suppresses truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest to them, but they suppress it in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest to them. And this man speaks words that are offensive to a proven good, generous master. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown. Listen to your own words. Let me quote your own words back to you. If you really believed you were going to have to answer to me, what did this servant actually think? My master's never coming back. The Bible says far more about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ than His first coming. And yet most of the world will, are saying to themselves, 
that's never going to happen, that's never going to happen, that's never going to happen. Yes, it's going to happen. And when it happens, it will have happened forever. You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. This is your own opinion of me. And gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received my, back my own with interest. You could have done at least that least of things. Instead you did worse than the least of things. You buried it. You had no interest in serving me. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Wait a minute. Who has ten talents? Isn't that you? Didn't the ten talents come back to you? No, I allowed my servant to keep the ten talents. He expected to be returning them to me, but no, I allowed him to keep them. And the same thing with the man with the two talents. I allowed him to keep the four. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. God is so generous. God is so generous. To everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I made the point last week, and every preacher has this happen when you finish a sermon you wish you could preach it again and the one thing I wished I could have gone back and emphasized more powerfully was God's ferocity but God's ferocity isn't just for us God is just as ferocious with himself as with us well, what are you talking about, Mark? How is God ferocious with himself? When God the Father sent God the Son to the cross, Jesus was judged for the sin of the entire human race. All of what the human race would spend an eternity in the lake of fire enduring, Jesus endured in our place on the cross. God did not restrain his hand. My God, my God, said Jesus, his son, why have you forsaken me? It, become, it became unnaturally dark in the middle of the day. The Roman soldiers are trembling. They've never seen anything like this. They've crucified lots and lots and lots of people. This has never happened before. And then Jesus said, it is finished. It is paid in full. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the Roman centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. We tremble, as we ought, 
at the whole concept of the lake of fire, of the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We ought to. But do not ever in your mind or heart think that God, our God is unfair. He is never unfair. He poured out everything justly due to us on His Son on the cross. And those who reject that payment made for them are therefore saying, God, I don't want your mercy. I don't want to benefit from the justice you poured out on your son who took what I deserve. I don't want that forgiveness of my debt. I want to pay my debt myself. God will allow you to do that. This servant chose to do that. The balance of chapter 25 is the judgment of the nations. And it is that historical event which will take place upon the event of the second coming of Christ. The heavens are ripped open. And this is what I'm going to tell you is all found in Daniel chapter 12. The heavens are ripped open. He comes out and the earth is his. And then it says in Daniel chapter 12 that following his coming, there will be 30 days and then an additional 45 days. And those who make it past that 75 days, 30 plus 45 is 75 those who make it past that are home free. What's going to happen in that 30-day segment and then 45-day segment? In the 30-day segment, I should have one of these people that's done the Daniel study come up and you, you, you can do this, right? Uh, in the first 30 days, Ezekiel chapter 20, God will gather every Jew on the planet to what's called the wilderness of sin. This is in Ezekiel 20. It's a supernatural gathering and he will enter into judgment with them and remove from their presence all those who insist on walking in a rebellion. And he will then lead the believing Jews, the submiss those who have received his mercy, he will lead them into Israel. But then you've got this additional 45-day period what will happen then? What we will be reading right now is what will happen then, which is the judgment of the nations because God will again supernaturally gather now the surviving Gentiles together and he will enter into judgment with them. And that is described, this is the most complete description of that judgment in the Bible. Verse 31, 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations, the Gentiles, will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another, one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You see, the Jews throughout the tribulation time, just as they are today, there are Jews in every nation. And goal one of the Antichrist, the chief opponent of Jesus Christ on the planet, will be to annihilate every Jew on the planet because they won't worship him. They won't worship him. And these are Gentiles who saw these Jews in jeopardy, in need, and met their need. Gave them protection. They are the brethren of the Lord. And how did they exhibit their authentic faith in the coming Jesus? By protecting His people. That was the vis visual proof of the authenticity of their relationship with the true and living God. And Jesus says, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you are doing it for me. Verse 41, then he also said to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. By the way, the lake of fire wasn't created for the human race. It was created for the devil and his angels. It's their destination. No human being needs to arrive in the lake of fire. Why do they? Because they insist on God being just with them instead of merciful. Okay, well, the fact is, when you choose to reject my mercy, you are choosing to stand shoulder to shoulder with Lucifer and all the other fallen angels. Well, I don't think that's fair. I don't like that, God. Oh, it is fair. That's the choice you're making. Now, if you had a malady and you went to your doctor and your doctor did a, the test and brought out a diagnosis, he could say, okay, here is the diagnosis, here is the remedy, and if you choose to accept this remedy, you will be delivered from your malady. And you could look at that doctor and say, well, I don't happen to want to accept that remedy. Well, that's the remedy. Well, I don't think that's fair. Uh, that's the remedy. Well, I'm not going to accept that remedy. Fine. Then you're choosing to retain your malady, your problem. Who made the choice? The doctor or the patient? The patient. And so the patient gets to live with the outcome of the choice they made. Nobody will be able to, in from the lake of fire, say, I didn't choose this. They did. In John chapter 16, Jesus says to the apostles, just not long before his arrest, 
the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. The sin that condemns the human race to judgment is unbelief in Christ. If you commit every other sin, but you don't commit that sin, you cast yourself on God's mercy, you trust in Christ, the guilt of all your other sins goes away. <laughs> the sin that brings condemnation, eternal condemnation, is the sin of unbelief in Christ. Of sin, because they believe not on me, because they have rejected my righteousness, of sin, righteousness, and judgment, They've rejected my righteousness that I offer them as a free gift and of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. When you reject me, you are making another choice. You are choosing, you are choosing to stand shoulder to shoulder with Lucifer and take what he gets. You may not like that. The same as the person who refuses the doctor's remedy. And they choose to retain, maintain their malady. Whose fault is that? The remedy is offered. Well, it's on the patient, not the doctor. Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? <coughs> then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me. The inner faith would be demonstrated in how you treated the persecuted Jewish people around the world. That would be the acid test, the proof te test. Verse 46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Don't read life as if it's just living forever. No, life as in heaven's abundance. Heaven's abundance. Sharing God's own experience with Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the assurance of knowing that you are the absolute master of all things. The entire flow of history will ultimately come to the foot of your throne. And every, what seems to us to be loose ends, every loose end will be tied up and every single thing will be answered, every question will be answered, every issue will be addressed. And we will see on that day your complete mastery of all things. We are so grateful that our God isn't just God by a little bit. 
but in fact, nothing is even truly a challenge to you. You are absolute master, and you are our good, merciful God who have caught us up in your arms. We are so thankful for that. We are asking that this week you might give to us an opportunity to share this good news of your mercy made available, made possible because of your son's sacrifice with someone. That free, complete forgiveness is available to all simply by asking based on Jesus' sacrifice. We ask for this opportunity and the Holy Spirit prodding and animating to take advantage of it. We ask this of you, good shepherd Jesus. And we thank you for the mercy that you have prompted us to receive. And all God's people said, Amen. Mm-hmm.